love getting to, to worship together every Sunday. And uh, if you are a guest, I'm Jack, one of the pastors here. Really honored to have you here. And, and uh, you're kind of picking up into a series we've been in called Rhythms, looking at this notion of some core values we see in the scriptures about what does it mean to live this life God has for us. And, and, and that's totally cool if you're kind of jumping in, because I'll recap real quick kind of the things we've looked at. And it's it's a lot of the values that we're building this church on, a lot of values that are really, at the end of the day, to become rhythms of just a natural part of how we live and how we experience and how we engage in life. And if you have your Bibles, you can go to John chapter 20. We're going to start there. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. If you have your phone, you can go to YouVersion. Uh, we've got the live link and all of my notes and stuff are there too. So uh, really glad you're here. And as we go on this journey tonight, kind of looking into the Word, uh, if you're new, uh, I'm going to teach for a little bit, and then I'm going to transition us to a time of communion, which you're welcome to participate in as a follower of Christ. And if not, just take space to pray, and then we're going to end with the song, and, and that's kind of where we're going. So you ready? John chapter 20, let me kind of catch you up to speed in this rhythm series. We've been looking at this notion that Jesus is building his church. Element City Church is not Jack's church. It's not Brian's church. This is the church uh, of Jesus. And he's the one that's building this movement. And we are invited to still build in that movement. And we looked at this movement of Jesus moves forward one life at a time. And we asked the question the very first week, who's your one life. Remember we talked about that, right? So who's the one life that God is kind of putting across your path that you're saying, hey, I want to invest in maybe somewhere down the line, I can invite them to begin to consider or investigate this guy, Jesus, and the grace that he's given me. In the second week, Brian talked about this avoiding the bleachers, that the life of following God is not about observation, it's about participation. It's about getting involved and using the skills and talents and abilities and opportunities that you have. And we looked last week at this idea that no one stands alone. And we had this one little phrase that we kind of kept saying over and over that when, when compassion is advancing, aloneness is retreating. And that we have been called as the church to help remove aloneness that we all struggle with. If you breathe, anyone breathe? Yeah you're going to struggle with aloneness at certain times. It's part of our human condition. And as you struggle with that, we need people that can come alongside and say, hey, you're not in this alone, and you get to do that for other people. And in John chapter 20, what I want to look at this week is this notion of life-giving living. What in the world does that mean, Jack? Life-giving living. I want us to lean in and learn about this life-giving grace that Jesus gives us and that we need it, and not just that we need it, but that we get to be conduits of that to this world and to the people in which we get to intersect life and live life with and alongside. That we have a, a gospel, a story, a, a narrative of Jesus that says there's something more about your effort. It's, it's more than just your effort. It's, it's not this idea that you could attain it. It's just this gift of grace, this life-giving grace that's given to you. And I want to look in the Gospel of John. I want to start back here toward the end in John chapter 20, and I want to read a verse. And maybe, maybe you've never thought about this before. In fact, maybe you're here and you're kind of investigating the whole spiritual thing and, and the whole Jesus thing. And man, I think it's super awesome that you're here. And here's one of my favorite verses in the Gospel of John, because John's going to tell you why he recorded the Gospel of John the way he did. 
Now, we know that the gospel writers are, are kind of inspired by the Holy Spirit to record this, and, and I can go into that, but I don't have time for that. So let me just kind of share this verse, because I think it's one of the greatest verses in the whole gospel of John. Here's what John writes. He said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So in the gospel of John, a bunch of other things that aren't recorded, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. Here's why I think this is such a cool verse. A, because it's tucked near the end. It's like John had this afterthought of like, oh, wait, there's a lot of other things I could have put in here. But I really need to end because people aren't going to read past 21, 22 chapters. They're just not going to do it. So um, there's lots of stuff I want to put in here. But this, these have made it in here because... I want you to know Jesus really is who he says he is. And by that, knowing that you will believe in him, and by believing, you will have life. Think about that. There's so many things in our culture that we are told give us life, right? Success will bring you the good what? Life. And is that true? Well, it's sure nice to be able to pay for dinner on your own, right? In some ways, it's, it's true. I mean, it, but we all know people, and we maybe ourselves have experienced successful times, and even in the midst of successful moments in life, you, you still sense that this isn't everything. Why? Because there's always a taste and a longing for what? More, right? It's like never quite enough. I know a lot of people who pursue knowledge and want, they say, okay, if I just get knowledge and the more wisdom and knowledge I gain in life, then I will have the good life. And yet so many smart, smart people that I've had conversations with say, you know, it's just, they, they end up talking like Solomon. Remember when Solomon said it's, it's meaningless. You know, they, they know all this stuff, but it's like it doesn't give them life. It's not life giving for them. I know people who, who say the allure of control and this notion where I, I can just have all the power, and once I gain that, then, then I will have the good life, and a lot of people go after that. I know a lot of people on the other end who get tired of that treadmill, and they just say, forget it, and they kind of give up all control. They give up all power, and they just kind of lose themselves in addiction, and they lose themselves in just kind of giving everything else away, and then they wake up and realize, yeah, that's not the good life either. We have a lot of pursuits that go after this good life, but Jesus makes this declaration in the Gospel of John. Remember, John just said, I've recorded these stories that you may believe, and that by believing, you may have what? Life. So can we just look back at one of these encounters, because Jesus makes this incredible statement about life. It's a famous verse, maybe you've heard it, John chapter 10, Jesus is in this story, he's talking about, I'm the good shepherd, and he's kind of comparing and contrast with these other so-called shepherds that are trying to lead you spiritually, and Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd, and then he has this John 10, verse 10, here's what he says, John 10, verse 10, he says, the thief, he comes to steal and to kill and destroy but I've come that you may have what? Life, and you may have it to the full. Look, there's a lot of other people, Jesus is saying, that have kind of put this allure of what the good life is 
but I want you to know it actually leads you down a path where you're going to wake up and realize you don't really have what you think you have. I'm the source of life, he's saying. I've come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. In this significance, you may have life satisfied. And we look for satisfaction in so many different things. The Rolling Stones wrote a song and said, I can't get no. Really? Seriously? No Stones fans? I can't get no. Thank you. Okay, that's much better. Participation. Good job. Um, and so it's this notion of this pursuit of all these things. And Jesus is kind of saying in John's recording, remember, why did John write this? I've recorded these so that you may believe, and in believing you may have life. And so Jesus makes this statement one day, I've come that you may have life, and that you may have it not just eh, but have it to the full. In fact, Jesus makes some pretty radical statements in the Gospel of John that John's recorded so that we would believe and that we would, by believing, we would have life. And he talks about Jesus, uh, maybe one of these other ones in John chapter 7, is this notion that, that we all have these thirst in life. Maybe it's a thirst for satisfaction or a thirst for uh, significance or a thirst for meaning or a thirst for whatever that we all have them. How many of you have ever been thirsty before? I mean, how many of you have ever been really, really thirsty before, okay? I want you to think of a time where you've been really thirsty. I'm going to give you 20 seconds to turn to your neighborhood, two, three people right around you. Tell them one time that you were really thirsty, okay? Go. One time that you were really, really thirsty, maybe it was after practice, I don't know what it was for you. When do you remember being really thirsty? Some of you, it's right now because I'm talking about it so much. You remember that moment when you were really thirsty. In fact, here's what I'm going to tell you. In fact, when I'm going to tell you this story, and you'll be like, yeah, I remember feeling that. I remember feeling one time this, like, where your tongue swells up. Anyone with me? Yeah. And you're like, and, and it's like, mm, mm, and you're like, you can't even move. And like, you got like a cotton field growing around your lips. Anyone ever been there? It's that bad. Maybe it's after a practice and you've been working really, really hard and, and whatever it might be. I remember a time with my friend Tim and his dad hired us to go to his warehouse. So we had to unload a semi truck. It was Tim and I in college, right? And this semi truck backs up and they swing it open and it's 35 pound charcoal bags from the floor to the ceiling, front to back. And he said, your job today is to unload that truck and put it on pallets and I'll come move it. And I remember looking at Tim going, Tim, I hate you. Why'd you call me? This is ridiculous. This is why I'm going to college. And so I remember being in that moment and Tim and I were like working like dogs to move these charcoal bags. And like every time we moved this cloud of black dust would just go everywhere. I did not look this way at the end of the day, okay, I looked ethnic. And so it's just this notion, I was moving charcoal bags all the time and all the time, and we got halfway done, and it was like most of the day was gone, and we're like, we gotta finish this thing. And so Tim and I made this bet. We're like, hey, no more water breaks until we're done. And we're like, okay. And like, that's stupid, okay? 
But in college, you're like, you don't have a brain because you're just like, well, I could do that. That's like totally easily to do. And so we spent the next four hours unloading charcoal bags. And every time we'd look at our water bottles and they would call to us, trick me. And we would say, no, behind me, Satan. And we would just, we would go and go and go. And we worked so hard and so on. And we kept looking back over there and they got, they got bigger. And it's like when your water bottle grows and you realize, man, I thought that was 32 ounces, and it looks like 144, and you're like, I really, I need to go visit. No, no, okay, we keep holding each other accountable. We're like, no, no water till we're done. And I remember finally finishing and finally having that water kind of hit my lips and into my mouth and just the quenching that it, it felt like. Have you been there? When it's just, it finally made sense and like all was right in the world, and you're like, I can't believe I'm that stupid that I would make that bet. And you realize in that moment, we all get thirsty, not just physically, right? It's not just physical thirst that we're talking about. It's emotional thirst. It's mental thirst. It's, it's all these thirsts of life that kind of drive us, that lead us to places, and we long for that. And we want that. And I want you to kind of keep that in mind because this story that John records that we might believe and that in believing we might have life in John chapter 7 is this amazing story. In fact, it takes place in what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, right? So the Feast of Tabernacles, since you're probably not Jewish, you don't know that the tradition, the heritage of what's going on is this reality, this feast that the Jewish people would have observed. And, and the story of Jesus and his conversations with religious people, with people who are following him, and, and all this notoriety and all this attention is kind of building for Jesus, and so much so that he's kind of a wanted man. In fact, at this point in the Gospel of John, it's recorded that people are trying, the religious people are trying to trap him in order to imprison him or maybe even kill him. And so he's kind of gone into hiding. He's kind of, well, a little more incognito, right? And this feast, which everybody would have been at, is going on. He doesn't show up. It's a seven-day, eight-day type feast, right? It's this remembering. In fact, there would have been these festival processions that would have happened. And in this particular one, every single day, the people would gather and they would follow the priest who would take a golden pitcher and walk down to this pool, to the stream of Gaon. And, and they would go down here, he'd fill up the pitcher, and they would walk back to uh, this, the altar that was there in Jerusalem, there at the temple, and they would pour that water at the base of the, the temple altar there. And it was the symbolic representation of how God provided for his people in the desert. If you remember, the people of God way, way, way back uh, are, are taken out of Egypt, right? And they're kind of being led through the desert. And at one point, they run out of water. And Moses strikes his staff against a rock, and this rock begins to flow water. Do you remember this story? In the Old Testament, if you're kind of new to the Bible, it, it's, it's a cool story. You can read it in the Old Testament. I'll, contact, I'll talk to you about it later. But it's this really cool way where God provided something for his people that desperately needed. They had a thirst that they could not quench. And so this, this festival is remembering not just that, but also remembering what Zechariah is telling about, that when the Messiah shows up, he's actually going to provide this living water that will quench the internal thirst that we have, right? And so think about it. For seven days, every morning, golden pitcher, down to the water, fill it up, bring it back, pour it on the altar. Every day, golden pitcher, down to the water, bring it, fill it, pour it out, right? And the people are singing. And this is part of this festival of remembering, except the last 
day. In the last day, there would be no procession. There would simply be a prayer time around the altar when they would pray because it's moving into autumn. In autumn, they need the rains for this next set of crops because this is an agricultural-type society, right? They, water is life for them, not just drinking water, but water for food and everything. It's everything to them. And in that moment, they realize, okay, Messiah is not here, so we got to pray for rain. we got to pray for this water that God would water the crops and that we would continue to be able to grow as a people, right? And it's in that moment where Jesus who's been in hiding, who's been incognito, stands up and says something. And I want you to listen to what he says because it's an amazing declaration. With all of that backdrop, right? So now you've been there. You're seven days into this. This procession has happened. The water is poured out on the altar. And in the seventh day, Jesus stands up. Verse 37, John chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, rabbis usually taught sitting down. Jesus is standing up. It's the first time people see him in this festival. He's been incognito. And Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Think about that. What is he saying in this moment? That he's circle K? No. He's saying something incredibly radical. I am who you have been proceeding and praying and singing about the last seven days. If you're thirsty, here's where you come. Here's, here's where that living water that you've been praying for, that you've been kind of remembering and that you've been alluding to, that all the prophets are kind of pointing to, here's all the scriptures. It's right here. If, if you're thirsty, you come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. Not only will you have your quench, your thirst quenched, you will actually become a thirst quencher of other people. You'll actually have something happen within you, and you can read the next couple of verses. It's kind of talking about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit necessarily hasn't been a part of the picture as a whole here, but it's referring to the Holy Spirit. He kind of pictures him as water which is interesting because throughout the scriptures, you'll see the Holy Spirit referred to as a lot of different images that kind of help us get our mind around it. The Holy Spirit might be fire, right? The Holy Spirit here resembled water. You'll have this life-giving water, not just flow into you, but actually begin to flow through you. Not only will your thirst get quenched, because if you're thirsty, come to me, Jesus is saying. But if, when you believe in me, you're going to actually have this life-giving grace, this life-giving water begin to flow out of you to bless other people. Think about that. I think sometimes we forget the scenarios of what these stories took place. And why did John write this? Well, he already told us. 
I write these stories so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life. Because I know you can look for life in a lot of different things, but if you want true life, I know who the source is, and not just that, if you have these thirsts that drive your life, and yet you never seem to grab them and attain them, it's because you're looking in the wrong place. And let me tell you, not just where to look, but who to look too. That's what John's saying. And Jesus says, come to me if you have these thirst of life. And I know friends who have these thirst, these thirst for significance and for meaning and for purpose, and they pour their life into a lot of different things, and yet they're still hollow and empty. Have you ever been there? And Jesus would say to you in that moment, if you're thirsty, you come to me. I'm the source of where you will find this life-giving grace and you will find something that, that no earthly satisfaction, no matter how much you attain of it, whether it's marriage or family or money or fame or enlightenment or travel, athletics, academic achievement, whatever you acquire in this life, it's fading. It's not lasting. And as much as you can get of it, great. There's nothing wrong with that but it's not the true source of satisfaction and significance and fulfillment. If you're thirsty, come to me. So who's thirsty? Well, Jack, well, certainly it's the down and out, right? I mean, it's got to be the broken people, right? I mean, I've pretty much got it together, right? I mean, I've been in church all my life. I've been around God. I'm kind of leaning in his direction. It's certainly not me. I may have a little bit of thirst every so often, but remember John wrote these stories that we might know. Isn't it interesting? Have you ever put this connection together? That Jesus is having conversations with people in John chapter 3 and in John chapter 4 before he ever gets to John chapter 7. And in John chapter 3, he meets with the spiritually put together, the one who's enlightened and who's empowered, who's well-connected, who has everything going for him, and yet is seeking Jesus out in the middle of the cloak of darkness because he's thirsty. It's Nicodemus who is spiritually connected. He's part of the upper class. He's well-connected. He's prominent. He's part of the religious elite. He is outwardly fully righteous, and he is thirsty. And Jesus says, come to me if you're thirsty. And in John chapter 4, he meets a woman by a well who's gone through a lot of brokenness in life, the kind of person we may look at and label and say, yeah, they're thirsty. They're obviously thirsty. They've gone through five marriages. They've gone through, they're searching for so many different things. Obviously, it's that person, right? And Jesus would say, yeah, they're, they're thirsty, but just as thirsty as Nicodemus. And so there's this thirst in her life because she's the poor. She's the outcast. She's seen as the enemy or the social misfit. She's the outwardly sinful, and she's thirsty. And Jesus meets her, and he begins to tell the story about a living kind of water in John chapter 4 before he ever gets to the Feast of Tabernacles. And here's the point. Life-giving grace of Jesus is for everyone, from the hyper-religious to the sacrilegious, and everyone in between.
we are all thirsty. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to where? Me. Come to me. I'll quench your thirst. It's interesting that Jesus makes this declaration, this this life-giving water example, that the Spirit would be seen as this life-giving water that would begin to flow from within us. You realize that this world, at creation, the world was covered in what? Water, right? Land doesn't really appear until day three of creation, in the creation narrative and the story. And so much of our water today, 97%, we can't drink. Seawater, ocean water, there's only three to four percent that's really fresh water that we can partake in. There's so much available, maybe even beginning to speak about God's omnipresence. God's everywhere, but very little. There's maybe a small path. Maybe Jesus would describe it as there's a narrow way where you can really begin to experience life. And maybe what Jesus is saying is, here's, I'm the source of this life-giving grace and life-giving water for you. God's grace goes beyond our own benefit and into the benefit of others. And Jesus is saying, you come to me when you're thirsty. And and as you drink in, you're gonna be filled up and then you will be overflowing with this life-giving grace that I long to give you. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you maybe four application parts kind of coming out of the story. John's writing this story and recorded these stories that we may know. And in knowing, we may believe, and in believing, we may have life. So it's this first one is this. Life-giving grace is something that we need all the time. We need God's life-giving grace continually. We need it all the time. This life-giving grace is not a one-and-done type thing. It's not that, okay, I prayed a prayer, and now I'm done with that part, and now it's all about my effort and my energy and how I obey. Listen, God's grace is bigger than your obedience, and that's a really good thing. You know why? Because none of us are fully obedient, are we? We need God's grace to be bigger than our effort and bigger than our energy and bigger than our obedience because we need a Savior not just a self-help plan. We need a savior. And so in that notion, Jesus is saying, you gotta drink of me often, stay connected. We need that much like your lamp in your house. You don't walk in, even if you have a clapper, and you clap, and the light doesn't come on if it's unplugged, right? It needs to be connected to have any kind of source of power. And friends, we need to continually stay connected to this life-giving grace of Jesus. His grace is your power. His grace is your power. They're equal, and it's what you need to run on. I love what Dallas Willard, one of my favorite theologians, said, Christians need to burn grace like a 747 burns fuel taking off every single day. It's not a one prayer, done deal. It's, God, I need your grace for today. I need your grace to to tackle the things that are coming my way, to be a blessing in this world, to handle the decisions that are kind of coming down the the pike that I need to make. I need your grace for today. Maybe a second one is this. His life-giving grace is something that truly changes us, not just helps us modify our outward behavior. The spiritual life of following after Jesus isn't about behavior modification. 
It's about heart change. Inside out, heart level kind of change is the only lasting change. Otherwise, it's just camouflage and cover-up. It's charades. We need a heart level kind of change. Character, inside out kind of change. Not behavior modification. And as we work on that, as we lean into Jesus, then he begins to change us from the inside out. His grace is his power. And as it begins to change us, then our behaviors and our decisions and the way we act or react in scenarios and situations begins to shift and begins to change. And are you becoming more and more like Jesus this year than you were last year? Not, am I behaving better this year than last year? Am I becoming more truly a reflection of his character and his heart? That's the spiritual growth question. Not, how many Bible verses do you know? How often have you been in church and do you, do you live as much as you did last year? I want to know how your heart is because it's the heart level change that impacts how we act and react. Everything else is just camouflage. It can be manipulated, true? We've seen it. Listen, raise your hand. You've done it. I've done it. We've all been there. And Jesus is saying it's something more. Maybe it's why Paul writes Galatians 5. He says, here's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Are those becoming more and more a part of your life this year than they were two years ago? That's spiritual growth. That's how you measure spiritual growth. Is my life changing, not just my behaviors? Because I can charade my behaviors, true? I can mask those. How are you doing and allowing God to be in life, his life-giving grace to infiltrate and change your character? Maybe a third one. We're becoming people of grace that begin to quench the thirst of others. That's the call of Jesus. That we become people individually that begin to, what, what did he say? Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and if you believe in me, streams of living water will begin to flow from within your belly, is what in Greek it's literally saying. From the deep within you, you're going to begin to flow this kind of life-giving grace outward. That it's going to begin to change you, and people will notice. Let me ask you a very simple question. Answer this in your own mind. Do people leave your presence filled or drained? Do people leave a conversation with you filled up or bummed out? Are they drained when they leave? Are they refreshed or are they thirstier? Because that's what Jesus is saying. Look, everybody's got these thirsts from the hyper-religious to the sacrilegious and everybody in between. And I'm here to quench thirst of people. And I want to do it in your life as you stay connected to me. And I want to begin to change you from the inside out. And as I do that, you will become a thirst quencher of the people that you live life with alongside you. So the very simple question is, do people leave your presence refreshed or thirstier? And maybe it's just simply saying, God, I want to be a refresher. I want to be a person. That doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. Please don't hear that. Most of you are probably never going to be an extrovert. That's okay. That doesn't mean you're less than. It just means you're an introvert. But you still have opportunities and conversations with people and connections with them that they can leave refreshed 
as you stay connected to Jesus. I love getting to hear stories from people who are being able to share um, just in simple ways in everyday life how they live with this life-giving grace that Jesus has given them. And as they leave conversations and interactions with people, the people they've just left go, there's something different about you. And I don't even know what to call it, but I feel better after I've been around you. That's life-giving grace. Here's the fourth one. A community of believers who are together, a source of life-giving grace and truth for a thirsty world. That's the church. Not just for you individually in the ways that you interact, in the paths that you cross, but friends, the church becoming a group and gathering of followers of Jesus who are connected to his life-giving grace, who are having that poured into their life, who are beginning to quench the thirst of others into a thirsty world, this collective group is able to say, along with Jesus, come here if you're thirsty. If you're thirsty, come here. We actually know the one who can quench your thirst. We hang out with him all the time. And you're welcome here. What if the church actually took that seriously. Listen, I'm going to say something that might hurt you and might offend you, might ruffle your feathers, but I am becoming more and more convinced of this, friends. We live in an age where comfortable Christianity has become the norm, and I don't think that makes Jesus smile. Do you hear me? I wrote this, comfortable Christianity was not the primary goal set forth by our crucified Christ. It just wasn't. And we can live in suburbia, but I don't think that's where Jesus would hang out. I think he'd hang out in a city. And I think that's the journey we have ourselves on. And that is in front of us that doesn't anything bad to anyone else, that just means for us. The calling Jesus has for us is to say, comfortable Christianity is no longer just okay. It's not about that. Doesn't mean I can't experience it, doesn't mean I can't taste that, but it means if I've settled for that and I, I look to that only, then I am maybe fading from the mission Jesus has said. I'm gonna build my church. And it wasn't, it wasn't the gates of comfortability. It was the gates of hell aren't going to overcome it. Do you hear me? And, and I say this to myself. I think so often when comfort becomes our primary focus and aim, our hearts have drifted from the mission Jesus modeled and commands for us to be on with him. The movement of Jesus is not about come and chill out. It's always about go, be, and do. That's the mission he gave the church in Matthew 28. Go be my witnesses. Go do things with me. You stay connected because apart from me, you could do nothing. But as you stay connected to me, I'm the source that will quench your thirst and I will fill you up and you will become a thirst quencher to the world that is thirsty, friends. That's the mission we have in front of us. What would it look like for a church to be used and to be useful, to be ready and willing to focus on serving a thirsty world. That's the question that's rattling in my head. And the question starts with, what would it look like for Jack to live that way? 
And I'm here to tell you, for a long time, I was comfortable being comfortable. And Jesus wrecked that for me. And I'm glad he did. And so I have no idea what's in front of us. Um, I really don't. Except, I think we're going to be part of a church that makes Jesus smile. And I think we're going to enjoy the ride with all the ups and downs that will come. And I think we'll wake up 10 years from now and look back and be able to say, that was fun, it was sacrificing, but I wouldn't have it any other way. That's the journey I invite you into. Join us on that journey. And that may mess with some of your thoughts and it may rattle some of uh, your cages and ruffle your feathers, and I'm okay with that. Because you have to answer the question, are you okay being comfortable? Or are you called to something more? Doesn't mean you can't experience some of that, but you can't cling to that. And, and maybe you're here tonight and this whole thing of Jesus is like, whoa, dude, okay. Can I just show you some of the reactions Jesus had when he stands up and says, hey, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. Remember this big moment that they're in, right? Can I just read you a couple of the verses that flow out of this? If, if you kind of go down here a little bit, by this he meant the spirit, verse 41, on hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this is a good guy. This man's a prophet. He's a good dude. Other people said, he, he's the Messiah. He really is the son of God. And yet other people try to plot to kill him. Other people are confused about his, where he was born. They don't know. And they say, thus the people, listen, verse 43, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. And you might be here. And you might be saying, okay, I'm, I'm investigating this Jesus guy. I'm not quite there yet. And I want to say to you, come back next week. Because I want to invite you, maybe give you an opportunity this week to read through this passage, to think about it, and to maybe see if God might bring you a little bit further along in your journey. And the next week, I want to give you a chance, an opportunity to say yes, if that's you. And that's the journey you're on. The last verse in Revelation uh, 22, what I love about Revelation um, chapter 22, verse 17, we've read this before, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. The spirit and the bride. Who's the bride in scripture always? The church. So Jesus is saying at the very end, I'm gonna call people. And I've actually built this system, this community, this infrastructure, this group of people that also get to sound the alarm and the invitation. That if you're thirsty, come to me. And you'll have your thirst quenched. And so as we move to a time of communion, our, our worship team is gonna come back up and lead us in a moment of maybe just reflection. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to partake. We've got communion stations up in the front of the room. You're welcome to participate in that. If you just want to chill and just think, here's the challenge I give you. Maybe those four things we talked about. You know, are you staying connected to the source of life-giving grace? How are you doing in that? 
Is it beginning to truly change you? Not just something that you use to modify your behavior, but it's actually changing your character of who you are. Are you beginning to quench the thirst and be used by God to quench the thirst of others around you? And are you signing up and are willing to say, God, I want to be a part of a church that says to a thirsty world, come here. There's a free gift of the water of life that will actually quench your thirst for satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and purpose, and it's available to you. And I want to be a part of a church like that. I don't know where you are tonight, but I want to give you a little bit of space and time. We'll close in a song. I'll come back up and, and dismiss this from there. But I just want to give you space in a moment to reflect on something maybe you've heard tonight. And just say, where am I at in that? How am I going to own that? How am I going to apply that this week? What's that look like? And so, Father, I invite you in these next few moments, as we remember the life-giving grace of Jesus that is only set forth not just in his teaching, not just the way he modeled and lived life, but the way he gave and sacrificed his life, that we might find and be found to have life in you. So as we remember his life and his death and his resurrection and communion, you tell us to do this in remembrance of you because it's an anchor moment for us. So would you re-anchor us again to this life-giving grace that we so desperately need from you? Each one of us needs a whisper from you and a challenge of how to apply this and to move forward. What's our next step? Would you whisper that to us tonight? And as we worship you, allow us to lean in to experience your encouragement and your grace afresh tonight. We pray that in Jesus' name.